But this time, loved ones, I invite you to first find our scripture reading, which will be found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 to 6. The relation of Deuteronomy 30 to the psalm that we'll be considering, Psalm 126, which we just sang, is it here in Deuteronomy 30, God declared from Moses from his prophet Moses, that he would in future times restore his people again, that he would revive them in a great and glorious way. And so we hear that in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 1 to 6. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. From there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belongs to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And now the sermon text for us this morning is Psalm 126, a song of ascents as we continue our way through the Psalter and highlighting select psalms. Let's pay attention now to God's holy word here from this beautiful poem, Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning. Well, loved ones, when you see brokenness, brokenness in your own life or in the church perhaps or in the world at large, don't you long for restoration? Well, if so, this psalm is for you. Psalm 126 here is for God's people when they are in a time of trouble, a spiritual drought, a season of barrenness, no fruit, only thorns on the bush. And God has given us this psalm for those who long for renewal. It gives us hope, this psalm does, hope that the Lord our God is able to turn the greatest tragedies in our life into even greater triumphs of his grace. In this psalm, we'll see that the psalmist here, the poet, first remembers the restoration of God, how he worked it in the past. Secondly, we'll see how he makes a request 
for restoration in the present moment. And thirdly, we'll see how he reassures us with the promise of restoration in the future. So three points, he remembers, he requests, and he reassures. First, he remembers how God restored his people in the past. And we see that in verses 1 to 2, where he says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Like those who dreamed. Now, some weeks ago, uh, after the sunset, in that kind of golden hour, the weather was just dreamlike. And my wife, Ariana, and I took kind of a stroll in our garden in the backyard Uh, The kids were already asleep, which was abnormal, (laughs) Uh, not customary that they'd be asleep that early. And there we were. It was quiet. It was peaceful. Uh, We felt warm, but yet at the same time, the breeze upon us was cooling us, and we felt safe and secure. And in that moment, Ariana turned to me and said, it feels like the shalom of God's kingdom is breaking into our little part of the world here and now. It felt almost too good to be true. It felt kind of like a dream. Well, that's the kind of experience that the psalmist is describing here in the opening verses. He's recalling a moment in the past when his life felt almost too good to be true. The goodness of it all felt surreal. He and all of God's people were suddenly surprised by joy, so much so that he says they were filled with laughter and songs of celebration. He says we were like those who dream. It was one of those crazy good moments, perhaps you've had them, when you almost feel like you want to pinch yourself, or maybe you even do, just to see if you're actually living real life or if perhaps you are in a dream. Maybe you felt that way. Well, that's how they felt in that moment. Now, what did they do in that moment? Well, he says in verse 2, our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongues with songs of joy. Well, what kind of laughter was this? Well, this is the kind of laughter that comes after a series of unfortunate events. Laughter after tragedy. It's a laughter that bursts out of people who are just thinking, ah, all is lost. There is no hope for us anymore. And then suddenly, they're surprised by joy. It's the laughter that comes after that sudden change of events that turns a great tragedy into a greater triumph. Think, for example, of a crowd of fans, fans of an underdog team, and how would they react if their team, up against the odds, scored that last second goal or point right before the buzzer of the championship match? Well, the crowd, what would they do? They would, you can picture it, they would all jump about shouting with joy and laughter. We've seen that kind of joy before in the Lord. Perhaps some of of us have been part of those crowds, you know, people jumping around, hugging each other, cheering in amazement that actually they won, they had the victory. Well, that's the kind of descriptive language that we find here, this exuberant joy. Now, when did the people of Israel feel this way? Well, the text doesn't tell us. The the poet doesn't tell us. It's rather general. It's broad. It applies to any and all times when God surprised his people with a victory by his grace and power. For example, we can think of the great exodus event out of Egypt. 
Think of how the Israelites must have felt when the Lord their God freed them from all the tyranny that they experienced under the Egyptian government. They were the tiny underdogs, right? Up against the great tyranny of Pharaoh, the undefeated superpower of their day. And yet Israel came out victorious in the end. And they had freedom. They had wealth as well. As they were leaving Egypt, we read in Exodus 12 that the Israelites asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And it says that the Lord, the Lord God, made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians, the text says. So they, they walked away, these former slaves, from their slavery, but they weren't poor anymore. As they were leaving, as they were emancipated, these who were former slaves were asking their former masters for their family wealth. Imagine that. And God made the Egyptians' hearts favorable to that request. The Israelites plundered their former masters' houses with God's permission. How could they not have laughed at that fact? It was ironic. It was even comical in a sense. It was too good to be true, they must have felt. The same ones that used to yell at them, whip them, were now giving them their silver and their gold and their best suits and their best dresses. We see that the restorative justice of God for Israel in that time and that place was almost comical. It was laughable. It was joyous. Also, I'm sure that they laughed when with joy, they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and they turned back. Imagine that. They passed through safely on dry ground in that great miracle of God parting the Red Sea, and they turned back and see that the waters fell upon their pursuing enemies. And, he, and there in Exodus fifteen twenty, the text tells us that Moses' sister, Miriam the prophet, took a timbrel in her hand, and the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. And they were singing songs of joy. Well, that's the kind of event the psalmist here is remembering. A great triumph after a series of unfortunate events, after much tragedy. Think of their tragedies that Israel had. All seemed lost for them as they cried out to God year after year, deliver us for 400 years in Egypt. It's a long time. It seemed hopeless when Pharaoh slaughtered their firstborn sons. It seemed hopeless when their daily labor intensified. And it seemed hopeless when they faced the Red Sea in front of them. How would they pass that? And then behind them was Pharaoh pursuing with all his might and strength and anger and animosity towards them. All seemed lost when suddenly, by God's command, the waters parted and they walked through on dry ground. And we can imagine the Israelites that day and how they reacted through the language of this psalm here, the imagery, when they realized that God's grace and power showed up for them and they triumphed over their enemies. They rejoiced. And it must have felt too good to be true. It was like a dream. Their mouths filled with laughter and their tongues making songs of joy. So after years of tragedy, they were surprised by the joy of God's restoration that he worked for them. The Lord has 
this reputation throughout all of Scripture of turning great tragedies into greater triumphs. Now, what did the other nations say about Israel after that great triumph over Egypt? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 26, 19 says this, that God set Israel in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations. Others saw what God had done for Israel, that he had done great things. And this didn't just happen in the Exodus event. It happened time and time again throughout the Old Testament history when we find as well that the watching world declared what we see in the second part of verse 2 in our psalm. 126. The world often stood in awe and said, the Lord has done great things for them. That's where the psalmist begins, remembering those past acts of redemption, and he recalls how God in the past showed up and saved the day for his people. He thinks of when the Lord brought his people out of slavery and into freedom from dust to glory. And he remembers those times when they were filled with joy. Now why? Why does the psalmist recall that? Why is he recalling God's restorative grace in the past? Well, it's because in the present moment when he wrote this psalm, God's people were not in a good spot. They were not in a good place. Israel was again in the midst of some tragedy when the psalmist sat down to write this poem. They were in great difficulty, great trials. It probably was written sometime after Israel returned to the promised land from their exile in Babylon, but the timing itself is not all that important. What matters is that the person who wrote this longed for a great reversal of evil. He wanted God to show up again and turn things around for his people. Why? Well, the former restoration of joy that he talks about in the first verses, 1 and 2, that joy didn't last forever. The joy was temporary, and they slipped back into trouble, which is why we hear the plea for restoration in the present in verse 4, which leads us to our second point. We see here the request in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, Lord. We find that as he recalled the past and how God showed up in the past, that that encouraged him to give this strong plea for restoration in the present. He longed for renewal. And this is what we long for, right, as Christians. Restoration. Think about the times when you have seen big or small tragedies in the world around you the world around us, or when you yourself have experienced a great personal tragedy, what do you want more than anything in those moments? Well, you want a sudden turn of events. You want to see the bad reversed and the good restored. What do I mean? Well, we want to have our lost loved ones restored back to life and in our arms again, in our embrace We want to have our frail bodies restored back to health and strong again. We want to have our sinful hearts restored to freedom, free from sin and death. 
And in the world, what do we want? We want peace established. We want truth to reign. We want all of God's good creation restored to be his holy dwelling place. God dwelling with mankind again. Now, one line in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us summarizes that great longing of our heart. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's kingdom to come here and now. And that's what the psalmist is asking for here in verse 4. That's what he wanted to see happen for him and God's people in his generation. This is his request in the present. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And then he gives us an image to show us what he wants to see happen. He says, restore us, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, this term Negev, it comes from the Hebrew term to dry or to wipe dry. And so this name Negev was given to the southernmost part of Israel in Judah, which was especially a dry and arid land, like a desert, right? And most of the Negev region, uh, in it, you can find what are called wadis, or seasonal watercourses. They're these dry riverbeds most of the year, but when the rain comes, water begins to flow into hundreds of tiny little rivulets that drain into dozens of larger watercourses, streams of abundant life-giving water. And in his commentary, Derek Kidner writes this. He says, Sudden bounty has its perfect illustration here with the streams of Negev. Since few places are more arid than the Negev and few transformations more dramatic than that of a dry goalie turning into a place of grass and flowers overnight. It's this vivid, beautiful picture of revival. A sudden turn of events. The lifeless desert turned into this lush garden flowing with streams overnight, suddenly. That is his request of God. Do that for us, O Lord. We're all dried up, Lord, like the Negev. Lord, make us flow with streams of life again. Restore our fortunes. Send your rain upon us, your mercy. Revive us again, O Lord. That's what he is crying out here. And that should be, beloved, our request as well. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask God for big things like this here in his church or in our own lives, asking that he would do this work in and through us in the city of Ontario and around, asking God to restore us and to bring a revival that his truth would reign that others would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let's ask God to do that work, to fill our mouths as well in response with laughter and tongues singing songs of joy. As we remember, as we remember that God is able to do that. He's able to turn tragedies into greater triumphs. And we have an event to look back to in redemptive history that is far greater than the Exodus, an event that instills within us great courage to ask big things of God. It is the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just think about how the disciples must have felt when Jesus was betrayed, arrested, condemned, crucified, and then buried. They must have felt like all hope was lost. Their beloved rabbi, their teacher, 
and their hopeful Messiah was dead and in a tomb. The restoration of God's people seemed like it was all gone, lost, a lost cause. And then suddenly on the third morning, that third day after his burial, a Sunday like today, they discovered the empty tomb, and then Jesus himself appeared to them in resurrected glory. It was the greatest sudden turn of events, a great tragedy turned into an even greater triumph by the grace and power of God. And I am sure that the disciples, after they realized that Jesus was truly there before them, felt like it was too good to be true. They probably felt like it was a dream. Could it really be that Jesus rose again from the dead? And we don't know if they pinched themselves in that moment to test and see if it was a dream or not, but we do read this in Luke's account where he says, Jesus said to them, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. In other words, it's not a dream. This is not an illusion. It's real. Jesus truly rose again from the dead. Friends, Jesus' triumph over sin and death is that great restoration of God that inspires us to ask him for big things, to request for restoration in our present moment. And we find in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that God continued to pour out his spirit upon his people, restoring them, restoring them, pouring out his spirit, sort of like rain. And we see that the people that followed Jesus were like the streams in the Negev. They prospered and they scattered about the world, sending that seed of the gospel into the ends of the earth. And now we have received that gospel ourselves. God's restorative grace has been going on ever since, going forth. But it wasn't easy, right? It hasn't been easy for the church. Their joy in Christ was also met with persecution, famine, danger, nakedness, and sword, as Paul says in Romans 8. But as he also says there, the early Christians realized that in all tragedies, they are more than conquerors. We in Christ are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we request for restoration in the present, let us also reassure ourselves of restoration in the future, that nothing can separate us from Christ. And there, is better there are better things to come, glory to come. And that leads us to our last and final point, we see here that the psalmist also reassures us of future restoration. You can see that in verses 5 to 6, where he says in his beautiful language, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. He's reassuring us here with the promise of future restoration, a sudden harvest of joy after sowing with tears, going out weeping. It's another vivid image that he gives us, and we can picture it, right? Farmers, they have to put seeds in the ground. If you've ever done any gardening, you know a bit of this, right? You have to put seeds in the ground, and it seems so futile. How is this going to produce anything, right? And sometimes they don't know if it will produce a good harvest, 
But when that harvest comes, it's amazing that this tiny little seed had the potential in it to produce so much fruit, bundles of wheat. And that's the image that he gives us. What does that mean for us? That even though we labor in much weakness and difficulty, and even though we go out weeping, carrying the seed of the gospel with us, in the end, God will turn each and every tragedy that we face in life into a greater triumph by his grace in the end. As he did in the Exodus, and as he did with Jesus in his death and resurrection from the dead, so too he will do again for all who follow him. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. That is a promise to each and every follower of Jesus Christ. Everyone who trusts in the Lord of the harvest. And so as Paul says in Galatians 6, this is an application for us. In light of that, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And that will be true of us, beloved of the Lord, beloved of Jesus Christ. There is a day in store for us when Jesus will return and make all things new. All good things lost will be restored after death in the kingdom of God. When our king returns, he will lift up our dead bodies from the ground and reap us from death into resurrection glory. And when Jesus brings us into the fullness of his kingdom, all the fortunes of God's creation restored and renewed, that day we will be like those who dream. We will be like those who dream. One day we will wake up in the full glory of Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Imagine that. Picture it. This psalm described how they felt in the past when they received God's restorative grace. But it's also a fitting description of how we will feel when we wake up in the kingdom of God, consummated on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a scene in the Lord of the Rings saga that fits this so well. Forgive me for quoting again from Lord of the Rings, but it's just too good. It's too good to not mention. So after Frodo and Sam, these little creatures, weak, frail, tasked with the heavy burden, took that task and went out weeping, leaving behind their home. And in the very end of their journey there at the mountain, Mordor, there's a sudden turn of events that happened that reversed the evil and restored the good. The ring that symbolized evil was destroyed. And then, as they're holding hands on the mountainside, dying. As friends, eagles take them and lift them up. And they're carried away on eagles' wings to safety. And then I'll read what happens next. Sam, one of those two creatures, Sam wakes up to a voice saying to him, Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? So he's just waking up, right? And Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he grasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, he thought to himself that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days without count. 
It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as sweet rain will pass down a a wind of spring, and then the sun will shine out the clear, his eyes ceased, and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from the bed. How do I feel? he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter, and sun on the leaves, and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. Beloved, that is how we shall feel when we wake up in the kingdom of God and behold the face of Christ our Savior. We will be like those who dream. And God is able. He is able to turn the greatest tragedies of our life into greater triumphs. As a friend of Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, famously said, and we'll end here, he said, Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Well, that's what this psalm is all about. That's what Jesus has promised and secured for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Trust in him. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this joy-filled little psalm that instills within us so much hope and even wells up within us laughter and the joy of our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ as we consider the great tragedy of his death turned into a great triumph when he rose again from the dead. And he did that for our salvation, to forgive us our sins and to give us an everlasting living hope through the power of his resurrection. Lord, based on that past restorative grace, we ask that you would continue to revive and restore your people here in this place until we arrive in glory and wake up in your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, let's sing a song.